Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read the first 12 verses of this scripture. May the Lord allow it to be blessed to our hearts as we hear it read. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. We trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. This morning I want to focus for our few moments together. The words that are found in verse 10 for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. I want us to think on that. And I want to think on it in the light of a question. And I'm taking this as my title. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Well, may the Lord help us to hear his voice in the word today. Before we go any further, let's just ask him to meet with us. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will overrule all that has to do with this world, with our old man, with our ways of thinking and our ways of heart. We pray that thou wilt come and allow the word of God to be truly that sword which is the quick and powerful instrument of God. Lord, we pray that you will let it be that which not only instructs us, but, Lord, does a work in us. Lord, that it draws us, that it feeds us, that it corrects us, that it encourages us, that it opens our eyes and our ears 
Lord, we pray that you will bless now this time. Lord, forbid, we pray, for the sake of Christ, anything that would not be your will to be spoken. But Lord, bless that which you do mean to be spoken. And Lord, we will thank you for all that you do within our hearts this very day. For we pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6 has to be among the most serious and somber chapters of Scripture. This chapter has a warning, a warning that speaks of the falling away of many. Many who have known firsthand the freedoms and blessings that rests on believing saints. The warning is terrifying for it speaks of rejection by God and everlasting punishment to those who at one point seemed to rejoice in the gospel and the path of everlasting life. Their experience, though, was never mixed with saving faith. Because their profession was only an outward embracing of a lifestyle. Then pull back to go back to what the world offers. Well, for them, it just seemed to be too strong to resist. They went away from Christ. And found that there was no way back. The enormity of this tragedy cannot rightly be perceived. How sad is pretense? How sad is presumption when it comes to eternal matters? Today will soon be over. To turn away from Christ is not a matter that unwinds itself. Hebrews 6 also has another group addressed. They are spoken to with words that encourage and bring confidence. These that I speak of are referred to in verse 10, excuse me, in verse 9, as beloved. They are those who have not embrace the Lord Jesus as an object of religion or as an establisher of a way of life. Oh, he is far much more than that. These have truly come to the person of Christ and have looked to him as the way, the truth, and the life. He is believed on. He is sought. He is precious. And he is trusted. Christ, to those mentioned, is a living Savior and a loving Lord. And of these, the writer of Hebrews is persuaded, confident. He's completely convinced that they will not be as those others that were mentioned. They will go on in their faith and they will show marks of salvation, marks that evidence a relationship with Christ, not a belief system about Christ, 
but a relationship with Christ. Verse 10 begins a thought that we can only say is based on an unspoken issue. The writer of Hebrews begins that verse with the word for. For God is not unrighteous, says the writer. There is a matter then that is obviously a serious one, but all too common, a common problem that has to be addressed with the words that follow. There's a problem that exists for, now here's the remedy without the statement of the problem. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. You say, well, what's he talking about? Why does he use that word for? What's the issue? Well, the issue that is unstated is this. If we are truly believers, if we are truly in that position that he describes as the faithful ones who continue on showing the relationship that exists with Christ, if we are in that place where we are knowing indeed the benefits of grace to our hearts, why are all things so hard? Why do we have to go through such hard days that cause some among us to go eyeing the world and leave? Why do we have to struggle so to just do the right things and make it through our days? I'm asking at this point, do these questions sound familiar? Are these questions that we ask ourselves, is this perhaps something that we've gone over in our own minds as we look at our days, as we look at our existence, as we look at what we have seen? Why is it so hard? If we are truly the blessed of the Lord, if we are truly those who belong to the Lord, if we are truly those that the Lord says, listen, I'm bringing you beside the still waters and I'm putting you in the green pastures. Why is it so hard? Well, I want us to think on that question and I want us to look at what God says here. And I'm going to seek to prove the following thought. God's definition of blessing and mercies does not at all line up with man's definition. Therefore, men are liable to follow wrong conclusions. What God calls a mercy, what God calls a blessing, what God calls provision, what God calls a loving kindness to his people does not ever seemingly line up with what men would say is the definition of what I just said. So the word in verse 10 is to believers and addresses our wrong conclusions about what we often see from the hand of our God. We say, it's so hard. But in reality, the Lord is extending these things to us because it is so good. I want us to think on just three simple points and I might set a record here for brevity. 
I want you to see with me first the appearance. The appearance. The, the appearance of the situation, the appearance of the way things are, is clearly displayed in the words of our text. This is how it strikes sometimes. This is what goes through the mind. This is what lies in the heart. Maybe it's not even spoken, but it's there oftentimes amongst us. And that is the appearance that God has forgotten our work and our labor for him. It is so common. It is so pervasive. It is perhaps among all the plagues that are in the church, may be the most common or, or perhaps the greatest. I'm going to put this in other words because I don't know that we ever really think of it in terms of God has forgotten. I think we, we in our minds translate it into another phrase and that is, he does not truly care about my situation. He doesn't really care. Oh, say, you may, oh, no, believers don't believe that at all. They don't. Oh, really? Mark chapter 4, verse 38. Give you the prime example that came to my mind immediately. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? That's exactly it. This very thought was in their mind. He doesn't care about our situation. Look at what we're looking at. Look at what we're having to go through. This is terrible. We could perish. Well, no, you can't. No, this is all, this is completely in the hand of God. But my point is that's their conclusion. We say, well, that was an isolated case. Let me just read to you some other things that you find in Scripture that say the exact same thing. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? In a little bit longer form, you have the psalmist saying in Psalm 88, starting at verse 4, I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength, free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, thou, whom thou rememberest no more. And they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Oh, this is not just something that's an isolated thing. This is something I say to you this morning in all honesty. You and I wrestle with all the time. Why are things so hard? If the Lord's blessing me, if he loves me, why is it that I'm going through this? It must mean, it must mean that he's forgotten me. That the sentiment of Psalm 13, verse 1 is my life's verse at this point. Well, I will say this, that the writer of Hebrews draws this whole issue into an even darker truth. That is, that the conclusion on the part of believers is that just because things don't line up with what we conclude, how they, we conclude they should be lining up, God is unrighteous. God is unrighteous. Oh, how, 
How sorry. A thought is that. But you and I have it come into our hearts. God is not righteous. Now I will say this. We never speak out our feelings with such words. We never would say that. We use other phrases which mean the same but without sounding blasphemous. <laughs> God isn't. We say things like this. Well, it's not fair. Really? You're saying not, it's not fair. You're really saying who is not fair? God is not fair to me. God is not fair to my situation. God is not fair to my heart. He's not fair to all the things that I'm having to go through. It's not fair that I should have to go through this. I've been trying to be the upright. An example of that, you remember the prodigal's brother? It's not fair that you haven't given me the things that I wanted. Well, you know what? The, I think maybe we mislabel that parable, the parable of the prodigal son. It probably should be the parable of the prodigal sons. Though one went off, one stayed home, but there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the real hearts. Perhaps this is a phrase. Why would it be so bad if I fill in the blank? You know, what's so wrong with it? Why would it be so bad if I, you know, God is keeping me from my wants and my blessings, my joys, my enjoyments? What would be so bad if... What you're really saying is it's bad because God hasn't given me what I think I want or need. Perhaps we say it this way. If the Lord was really blessing, if the Lord was really blessing, then... You know, when you say that kind of a phrase, you're really saying that the Lord's ways and providences are not equal to what's deserved. If the Lord were really blessing me, then it, no, no, no. You're saying God is not giving you equal to what you deserve. Let me mention to you this. The original sin that occurred in Eden was founded on this lie about God. Satan came to Eve and his accusation, his words, his temptation was founded on this premise. God is not righteous. And then he goes on to build on that because he says this. He knows. He knows. He knows what? Then in the day that you, well, so Satan's accusation was really he knows but he's trying to keep you under he's not righteous he's being mean at the best devious at the worst god is not righteous let me let me just say this there is nothing that is so destructive to spiritual health and faith of a believer as this thought god is not righteous he's not doing me right he's not doing me good he is not upholding me because things are so hard I say that that thought tears at the center of truth if God is not righteous then he is not truthful and I'm here to tell you it is possible I know firsthand from hearing some say this, it is possible to live an entire life 
with this questioning of God. And I will tell you, it destroys any real faith, and it just certainly destroys any usefulness. And so I say this problem, God is not righteous, is the framework for what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 10. This is why he comes to this point. That's the reason for the four. He says, this, I'm persuaded of better things of you, but I want you to know, God is not unrighteous. Do not let this thought come into your mind and in your heart. Kill that thought. Because if you don't, you'll soon come to the questions like this. What's the use of trying and laboring if God forgets? What's the, what's the use? What's the use of suffering? You know, some look at that question. In fact, the, the context of what we're reading here in Hebrews 6, some have looked at this very question and asked the question I just did. What's the use? And they go back to the world. Listen, it's no use going on with God. I could be having this or that or the other thing by just stepping back to the world. And I asked this morning, is this an issue for our hearts? What's the cause of such a thing? What's the cause of such a questioning of God or an accusing of God? Well, I think it's because we start with our own conclusions. We trust in our own heart. We lean to our own understanding. Even though the scripture tells us over and over again not to do these things, we do. And we're very confident in the product of our own conclusions. We are not humbled before God to admit that we do not see rightly. You know, when Job was going through his hard times at the end of it all, the Lord comes to Job and he comes to his um, conclusion manufacturing friends and the Lord asks or, and states Job 31 verse 1 then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge and further in chapter 40, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine head upon my mouth. What a miserable issue this is. But again, it's so common. And you see it other places in Scripture. I had my mind thought of both Mary and Martha when they came to the Lord. Lord, if thou hadst been here, if you'd been here, it's, you didn't do the right thing. The right thing would have been, Lord, that you had been here and that Lazarus had not died. Very common. And this is how it appears. But now I want to consider what I call the answer. The second thing, the answer. And the answer, like the issue, is not stated directly in the words of this chapter, but it is certainly there. If you look at verse 13 of chapter 6, For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. 
you see there, the answer then is being offered by the writer in terms of the character of God. He uses Abraham as an example, the promises to Abraham as an example, but really what he's doing is he's pointing to the character of God. God is not unrighteous, but on the other hand, God is most certainly righteous and he's most certainly faithful. His character is pure and holy. God is perfectly righteous. He cannot forget what he has in his providence brought us to see, to know and to do. He cannot forget this. So we are brought to this. What's the answer for us when we're in the hard times? When our minds are prone to wander off to thoughts like it's not fair or whatever else. The answer is considering the character of your God. Consider his person, not what lies about you. When I was first thinking about using this text, my mind came to these following thoughts, and I thought, oh, there's not, this doesn't address enough, so I, I made these as just a list to think through about the character of God, the answer to the question. Think about how God, and the first thing I said, well, think about how God is perfect in his favor to his people. Remember how God is perfect in his favor to his people. He is not going to leave off that which, he, which blesses his people. He will not allow them to be harmed. The favor of God is unchanging. It is forever because he has determined that his favor would flow out to us. Second, I listed this. He is perfect in his fervor toward his people. Think about this. I, this this kind of, um, well, I was going to say tickled my heart. But I think it's more than that. A fervent Savior. Fervent Savior. You know, we read, and we'll probably read again as we approach the days that are about to come. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever there's the character of the rule of the one who's being given the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this as my mind thought on that I, I came in my mind to John 2 verse 17 where it says and his disciples remembered that it was written the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up we have a zealous Savior, one who works not just tirelessly, but he works with all that's within him to bring good and blessing and help and strength to his people. He's perfect in his fervor. He's perfect in his faithfulness. He cannot be anything to you but faithful. Though we denied him, yet he abideth faithful, we are told. He is perfect also in, I'm making up a word, his face shining. That's a hyphenated word in case you're trying to keep up with me. In his face shining, and my mind went to Numbers chapter 6. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. 
he's faithful in doing this. Well, we have to take the next step here. You say, well, these are all truths. But really the question that we need at this point, and you're talking about the answer, the question is why? Why must all this be? Why must the Lord show all this to me? Why is it that this is certain? Why is it that what you're saying is truthful and accurate and to the point? Why is this so sure? And why is the conclusion of men so wrong? Well, the answer lies in this. All that concerns me, all that concerns my days, all that concerns the providences of God, all that concerns everything that has to do with me now, is tied completely to the Lord Jesus. What I'm trying to say is when I am truly in Christ, I cannot be forgotten in any way for Christ cannot be forgotten. You see, all these things that I was telling you, I was listening for you. God is perfect in his favor. He's perfect in his favor toward Jesus Christ. He's perfect in his fervor. Do you understand how fervently God the Father worked on behalf of his son while his son was on this earth doing that work which redeems us? All the fervency of God. Can you imagine that? The infinite God who makes all the creation. Uh, infinite God being infinitely fervent to preserve, bless, honor, and cause success to be the portion of his son. Faithfulness. Was the Father ever unfaithful to Jesus Christ? Did the Lord Jesus, who saw much more hardness and suffering than you and I will ever, did the Lord Jesus ever lift his, his face to his Father and say, it's not fair? Oh, no, no, no. And then this, the Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. There's words that primarily speak about the Lord Jesus, the Father's face shining on Christ Jesus. Do you understand then that the framework of how it is impossible for God to be unrighteous to you is because it's impossible for God to be unrighteous to the Lord Jesus? And as you are in him, it cannot be any other way. So even though you and I say, well, I don't understand why this is happening. Well, my ways are not your ways, neither my thoughts are your thoughts. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways greater than your ways. You're not going to understand a lot of this. But it's for my son. You are called on to walk through these days because it is for the honor and glory of my son. As I will bless him as I will be gracious to all things concerning him, as I will prove faithfulness over and over again to him, so shall it be done to you. You say, really? Yes. Here's the whole point of John 15. You understand John 15? The picture there? I am the vine. Ye are the branches. We are one with Christ. Not just theoretically, but we are absolutely in union, tied to him inseparably. We are those who draw the benefits through 
the root system of the vine. What is true of the vine comes to the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, how many times does the Lord Jesus say that in that chapter? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? It was hard for Christ. Come to my last point, the application. The application. We saw the appearance. We see the answer. Now the application. We come to the question that lies in our title, why is it so hard? I'll tell you why it's so hard. The answer is that all that hardness is the mercy of God. I would ask you, and I, I was, this happens over and again, and I, you just say, it has to be the hand of God. I would ask you to read the segment that you have in your bulletin from Morning by Morning from Charles Spurgeon. He deals with, why is it so hard? The point is, it's hard because those hardships, those things that you have to suffer, the things that you have to go through, the things that you have to stand back and say, I don't understand. Why is, it, why is this happening? It's not fair. Those things are God's mercies to you because of what those things do in your heart to drive you to that place where you need to be. That place is, of course, to the Lord. And let me just simply say this. I think you know this to be true. You may have actually seen it. And I think it's, it's something that's being said here in Hebrews chapter 6. About those who would go away. If the Lord did not ever have us to face these times that cause us to seek after him, we would quickly fulfill the words of Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You say, oh, not me. Uh, you're quibbling here because the scripture says all. Yes, you would go. Yes, you would. If the Lord did not put upon you those things that you'd have to say, our labor, you would, you'd stray away. Yeah, you would. My message again this morning is this. Do not despise the seeming hardships that come with the labor for Christ. The Lord has far from forgotten you. Quite the opposite is true. I would have you write at this point in your note Matthew 11 and 28. Is there an answer for you in the time of your labor, your hardship? What does he say? Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is the helps of God. It is given to us, child of God, it is given to you and to me to go through these times quite for the purposes and providential reasons of God 
Philippians 1 and 29, for unto you it is given. Underline that word in your mind. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. I'm also going to quote a verse that you and I know, and we take it to try to console ourselves, but I want you to hear this verse and the one that comes after it as a unit. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you understand that verse 29 sets, as it were, the framework for the outworking of verse 28? Why do I know that verse 28 is so sure? Because verse 29 is, explains it to you. God has determined before the worlds began, when he foreknew us, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? It means that we go through many things that Christ goes through. We are those that come to know things that Christ had to know. That is all things are working for good because God has purposed to make you like Christ. Oh, I say, the true believer is that one who will follow the shepherd and will walk in the same light as he walks. You know, what was that walk? Luke 24, verse 36, thus it is written in it, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will manifest the counsels of the heart. The Lord will show you what it was all for. And when you and I are able in glory to stand and see that all the hardnesses and the hardships and the sufferings that we went through do not as it were, rub or somehow cause our crown to shine brighter. But we'll be able to see that this is something that was being done for Jesus Christ. His glory is more. The Lord let me go through something so that the Lord Jesus might enjoy even more rejoicing and glory by those that stand and see him. Well, if that's the case, Well, two quick things. The application is this. Our God is not unrighteous, but the opposite. Do not let your mind go there. Child of God, do not let your mind go to that place where you start questioning God. Again, such thought is the true beginning of a great defeat. And to some, it is the beginning of a great falling away. Do not let your mind go. For God is not unrighteous. Also, an application is this. Do not let your thinking 
be apart from Christ. Do not let your thinking be apart from Christ. Or as we are told again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God through the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. There it is. Bring into captivity your thoughts. The Lord tells me what is true. He tells me how I am to think. He tells me the reasons why I can think what I do. Why then do I leave that way of thinking to go off and worry about myself? Or my life, or my circumstance, or my sufferings, or my hardships. The Lord tells me these things are all things that are being done for Jesus' sake. You are glorifying the one who has bought you with his blood by doing what he is, by walking in his steps, by being obedient to him, as we just read. Every thought's to the obedience of Christ. I will not let my mind go that way. So I conclude with just a verse. I put it to you, let you take it with you. Think about it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your affections on things above. Not on things on the earth. Child of God, where's your thinking? Where's your affections? Why are you calling what you're going through hardships or sufferings? or miseries, or whatever we want to say. Why do we call them that? Is it because our hearts and minds are all taken up with what we conclude? Or is it because we truly are resting in the word of God? Well, I would have to say it's not the second. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name may the Lord bless his word to our hearts Father in heaven now we would pray that you will bless this word to us we pray that you will let it be that which truly ministers and does within us a work that draws us to yourself oh God We are your people. We stand in need of your Spirit's help. Bless then, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.